0: The views expressed in the following episode are those of the subjects interviewed or individual presenters from the case. They do not necessarily reflect the views of Reach Freaks LLC, the Invisible Choir podcast, or cast media.
1: Reach Reeks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: I'm in shock. They were such a great couple and he was a really nice guy i I just i can't believe this and i we're at a loss she it is this is a deep loss for our neighborhood she just was she just was like a bright spot
0: you know domestic violence we cover more than our fair share of these cases on this podcast If anything, this is simply a clear testament to how much of a problem this specific type of crime still is in our society today. It's nothing new, and unfortunately, it's happening around us all the time. But what makes these cases unique, in a more dangerous and devious way, is that they're often invisible. Abusers usually do a pretty good job of hiding the terror they inflict on their significant others behind closed doors they're often able to keep it a secret from everyone else and, in complete contrast of what's actually going on, are able to fool others into thinking they're, quote, great guys. These people are usually men who are extremely manipulative. Loss of control and power over a romantic partner tends to be the catalyst in most of these cases, the catalyst which, for some, results in unimaginable consequences. It's the, if I can't have you, no one can, Type of mentality, if you will. Sadly, this case is no different. What is different about this story, however, is how the victim in this crime was able to leave behind breadcrumbs that would allow law enforcement to piece together what ultimately happened. A foreshadowing of sorts that would eventually manifest into reality. And from beyond the grave, disguised beneath several ink blotted loose leaf pages, One woman's premonition would eventually reveal the deplorable and gut-wrenching truth. Amber DeGraff grew up in a loving household in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with her sister Brittany and brother Justin. They were a close-knit group. Siblings, Amber and Brittany, would grow to be best friends, nearly inseparable from childhood and well into their adult years. They were members of their church and devout in their faith from an early age. Amber carried that importance of religion with her always, and upon her high school graduation, she even took part in several mission trips to Guatemala, helping the less fortunate in their communities. Photos of a young, bright-eyed Amber can be found on social media of her smiling over in Central America, hugging the local children. In an online blog dated Friday, January 31st, 2014, Amber outlines her motivations, hopes, and aspirations for the future. There is also a slideshow attached entitled, My Journey, written by Amber herself.
3: When I started college, I remember saying to God, lead me to where you want me to go. That summer after my freshman year of college, I went on a mission trip to Guatemala. Up until this point, I had only taken basic-level Spanish classes. While I was in Guatemala, I was really frustrated that I was unable to fully communicate with the people as to why I had gone on this trip. I was frustrated that I couldn't tell the people about Jesus and all He has done in my life. It was after this trip that I felt God nudging me into going into learning and teaching Spanish.
0: Amber would go on to community college before earning her degree at Calvin, a private four-year Christian university in Grand Rapids.
3: After Grand Rapids Community College and going to Guatemala, God guided my steps to Calvin College. At Calvin, I went into secondary education and decided to major in Spanish with an English minor. I also had my study abroad experience in Spain where I was able to learn more. My whole life, it seemed, being a teacher is what I wanted to do. I felt as if it were what God was calling me to do. I think it's mainly because I love being around people and I love learning. After finishing at Calvin, I received a job teaching Spanish full-time at South Christian High School. I have currently been teaching here for four years. I obviously have a love for languages. I don't know where God will lead me from here, but I have complete faith in wherever that is.
0: The presentation online is decorated with her college team logo, maps of the places she's traveled to, and animated footprints that move as you click your cursor along the page, navigating to the next slide. Even in those short blurbs of text, we gain a great understanding of just how compassionate and motivated Amber truly is. She was well-liked everywhere she went, and conquered any challenge she faced head-on. One individual who saw something great in Amber almost right away was South Christian's principal at the time, George Gitchelaar. They both shared the same enthusiasm for faith and religion. Here's a clip of Principal Gitchelar speaking back in 2012.
1: When I was young, I was taught that dinosaurs never existed. I was lied to. They knew then. My teachers knew that these bones were found. They lied to me. I got over it. But I don't want to do that to our kids. At the same time, I also know the perils of kids running off in, 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 at the college, uh, you know, or in the university setting and simply getting lost and leaving the faith. But I don't think it's always their fault. I, I put the responsibility squarely on us as parents and churches and, and schools. It is our responsibility to help our kids function in the society and at that intellectual level of dealing with questions about science and integrating them with faith and some of these apparent contradictions, if we don't teach them how to do that, they then fall into this dilemma of being forced to choose between one and the other.
0: Principal Gitchellar is clearly passionate about his beliefs. There is a lot of tragic irony in what he says here, however, that remains to be seen. You'll know what I mean by that shortly. After knowing each other for some time, casual discussions naturally occurred between Amber and Principal Gitchellar in the school hallways. It somehow came up that she indeed was single at the time and Principal Gitchellar suggested that she meet his son, Richard, believing wholeheartedly the two would be a great match. Richard and Amber both came from very similar backgrounds and were around the same age. Ultimately, she would agree, and Amber and Richard ended up hitting it off almost immediately. They dated casually at first, but things quickly evolved into much more than that. Little did Principal Gitchellar know that the orchestration of this blind date between his son and school teacher Amber would wind up being the most regrettable mistake of his entire life, sometime further on down the road. Fast forward a few years later, Amber and Richard's relationship advanced from moving in together to giving birth to two children, their daughters, Ari and Zara, to eventually tying the knot and saying, I do. Amber continued with her teaching career, having now taken a new position at Kentwood Public Schools by this point. She was teaching English as a second language to Spanish-speaking children at this point. As for Richard, he worked as a landscaper for Tender Lawn Care in Grand Rapids. His Facebook profile shows a default picture of him and Amber on vacation back in 2018. The two are seen in bathing suits standing together in the water, smiling while Amber snaps a timed photo on her phone from a selfie stick. This image is an exact representation of what everyone saw their relationship to be. Happy. From the outside looking in, things couldn't have been better for the pair. They seemed like your average young couple, excited to have come into each other's lives, to have started a family together, and to now be growing as one. Here is a public post Amber made to Facebook Marketplace when she was trying to sell a homemade playhouse Richard had constructed for their two girls.
3: This outdoor playhouse is in great condition. Paint is chipping in a couple places on the roof and mailbox. Wood by the play grill is cracking. Freshly painted door, brand new composite deck underneath so the kids won't get their feet dirty. It is very light, could easily be carried by two adults onto a truck bed or trailer. The composite decking is heavy, but my husband and I managed to move it together. Firm on price.
0: The clump house ended up selling for $350. Not a bad chunk of change to put toward bills or groceries. It's trivial posts like these through which we view someone's life on the internet. Amber was living the normal life of an average young mother. But these days, unless we're sharing the same roof as someone else, this is what we have to go by. Facebook, Instagram, and so on. Through social media, we tend to show people only what we want them to see. Everyone's life seems so perfect online. More times than not, that couldn't be further from the truth. In October of 2019, the couple faced their first real serious obstacle, when a terrible accident occurred involving their dog and a neighbor's child. While the neighbor and young child were walking down the street, Amber and Richard's Akita, named Shotzi, got loose and attacked them both. The accident resulted in severe injuries, including life-changing lacerations to the child's face, which required multiple surgeries. The neighbors ended up suing the Gitchellars and were reportedly granted a settlement somewhere in the ballpark of a half million dollars in February of 2020. Most importantly, the child would survive and by all accounts, everyone involved would make a full recovery. However, there's no doubt that something of this magnitude would cause a great amount of stress to anyone, including Amber and Richard's relationship. This, of course, would be an example of an unfortunate occurrence that people generally would not post about on social media. Something that most of us would try to keep private. As if a horrific attack via the family dog wasn't anxiety-inducing enough, a few months later this happened.
4: My fellow Americans, tonight I want to speak with you about our nation's unprecedented response to the coronavirus outbreak that started in China and is now spreading throughout the world. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. We have been in frequent contact with our allies and we are marshaling the full power of the federal government and the private sector to protect the American people. This is the most aggressive and comprehensive effort to confront a foreign virus in modern history.
0: In March of 2020, The COVID-19 pandemic changed all of our lives forever, Amber and Richards included. The two were now forced to be at home together constantly, just as nearly everyone was during this period. They seemed to become at odds with one another. All Richard ever wanted to do was play Xbox and focus on his fantasy football team when there were two baby girls to care for. Here's a riveting clip of Richard from a Facebook Live video he posted an audience of very few
5: members of d12 uh this is richard gichlar owner of the st louis pseudo pods since i didn't make my pick in 24 hours i will now jump ahead of myself uh, to make the pick anyways with the number two pick in the draft i am taking saquon barkley um he's the best running back oh saquon was taken okay that's a big surprise to me that i didn't see that coming at all so i'm actually going to take sony michelle i've been going back and forth on this for a long time hey mike try to make some trades nothing's looking too great i love his upside um he could also be fumbling and not play squat but I like his upside. I think his floor is probably the worst out of the top uh, or out of the next three running backs. So, Sony Michelle, number two. And then I'm going to make, uh, oh, thanks, guy. It's coming in, ain't it? Looking all right. Now you're distracting me, Mike. Uh, I'm not going to waste anybody's time either. I'm going to go ahead with pick three, and I'm going to take Darius Geis.
0: This video seems to sum up Richard's personality in a nutshell. Boring. A friend compliments his long beard in the video clip during their live chat. Richard calls himself the owner of the St. Louis Pseudopods, a fantasy football team that he created. The logo is an angry skull with tentacles. At first impression, there's nothing remarkable about Richard Gitchelar. He seems like an average guy. Let's listen to another clip of him speaking about, you guessed it, fantasy football.
5: Gonna give, uh, Possibly a few people, a little bit of time to join here, being a Sunday evening. I would imagine some people are available, so maybe wait just another sec here. Um, I know I am not the face that was expected um, to be seen um, quite so soon. Sadly, you are seeing my face again so soon. So, let's get down to it. First off, very importantly, I'd like everyone to know that I am signing this rookie for five years.
0: We'll spare you the rest. Richard loves fantasy football. By now you get the point. He talks in somewhat of a cocky tone with a relatively smug look on his face as he speaks into his screen about his latest imaginary football trades. But why is this relevant? Well, for one, Richard was focusing on building his digital dynasty in the draft, and that was about all he was doing. He became more and more distant from his wife Amber and their two daughters, even though they were physically closer, in proximity at least, than they'd ever been before. He only wanted to play video games and did virtually nothing around the house. Amber expressed to her friends and family that it felt like she had three children, Ari, Zara, and Richard. Here is a journal entry that Amber wrote expressing these frustrations in regards to her now absentee husband.
3: This makes me feel unsupported and downright abused. I clean and do it all, and he won't even pick up after himself. If I ask for help, I get an attitude, like from a child. I truly believe he expects me to do everything. When we run out of milk and our daughter's clean clothes, he gets angry.
0: Amber had been writing these journal entries in a notebook that Richard was unaware of. In another passage, Amber pens her recollection of a family trip they had all taken together. Here, she reveals that it wasn't just her who noticed a change in Richard.
3: Story number one. We go up north with family. He doesn't pack one thing. Everyone gets up to make food. He sleeps. Doesn't help. Doesn't say thank you. Doesn't offer to clean up. Story number two, dad coming over for dinner. My siblings think he is useless, sister and brother. His family wonders why he hasn't been kicked out of the family. Often when we do things around the house, he will say, I did blank for you. Example, he broke our closet door, so I went years later to buy two doors because they don't make them anymore. I got doors with the baby, painted them, and he says, I already put up the doors for you today. I put my laundry away for you. I changed your daughter's diaper for you. No, you did that for us.
0: It's evident that Amber's friends and family themselves weren't too keen on Richard by now. It was quickly becoming less of a partnership and more like a second job for Amber, trying to pick up Richard's slack. As he continued pulling less and less of his own weight, Amber continued writing, this time sketching a sort of pros and cons list of their relationship.
3: Number two, no initiative. Richard doesn't do anything without being asked. Morning, wakes up, takes meds, puts on clothes. After work, walks in, says hi, takes shower, eats, TV, walks our daughters to bed, walks to bed with computer, no conversation, repeat. Richard has never made us a meal, done laundry, turned on the vacuum, dusted or cleaned, picked up dishes, toys, or dinner, bought gifts, gone to the grocery store, or paid bills.
0: It seems as though Amber was quietly creating a sort of Venn diagram, weighing the good versus bad in her so-called partnership with a man that seemed to want nothing to do with her or the children. It's almost as if she was gearing up to leave him, or at least considering what her options looked like. Neither Amber nor her family seemed to be Team Richard at all by this point. But dirty dishes or household chores were soon to be the least of anyone's worries, as Amber would soon find herself on the receiving end of what was the worst to come. By now, Amber and Richard's relationship was hanging on by its last thread. Their latest qualm was the fact that Richard had been watching pornography excessively, something that Amber reportedly stated in text messages was ruining their marriage. Perhaps this was more against Amber's strong religious beliefs than anything, potentially compromising the sanctity of their vows. Whichever the case may be, this was something she was vehemently against a point that she made abundantly clear to her husband. A few days before Amber turned 33 in November of 2020, best friend and sister Brittany texted her and asked her what she wanted for her birthday. In a recovered text exchange, Amber replies by saying, quote,
3: A new husband.
0: Brittany didn't think much of the text at the time. She knew things weren't great between the two, but she just saw this as her sister venting as she had always felt comfortable doing. Days later, however, on November 15th, roughly three days before Amber's birthday, Brittany FaceTimed her sister at around 8.30pm. They chatted a while and eventually both said goodnight. Brittany hung up that call, not having the slightest clue that this would be the very last time she spoke with her sister ever again. November sixteenth, two thousand twenty, at approximately three twenty-nine a.m., the following nine-one-one call went out, dialed by Richard Gitchelar himself.
1: County emergency. My wife is.
3: She's not breathing. She's not breathing. What, what's the address? And she's, how old is your purple. wife? She's purple. How old and- is your wife? <laughs> Sir. Sir. Are there any kids in the home or is it just you and her? Yes, no, my daughter my daughter's right next to us. She's right. Okay. Here. No, I need you to take her out of the room. Sir, I know. I know. Listen to me a minute. Do you think she did on purpose or was it an accident? Okay, listen to me.
0: Listen to me. Don't hang up. The nine one one operator connects the call to medical dispatch.
3: This is Kent County, I started at Med Zero in Kentwood.
5: Okay. Call her, tell me what happened. My wife isn't breathing, she had... I think she had a a sweatshirt around her neck and she's not breathing.
1: She's dead. She's dead, (laughs) she's dead. Med One Echo. Med (laughs) One Echo.
5: All right, we are sending the paramedics to help you now, okay? I need you to stay on the line. I want you to loosen anything that's around her neck and then tell me if she's
1: breathing. I didn't, I didn't, she's not breathing. she's purple. Her eyes are bald. dead.
5: Okay, do you think she's beyond help? I do, I do. God, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Richard has just informed the dispatcher that his wife, who was just three days shy of her 33rd birthday, is deceased. We can hear him hysterically say something about a sweatshirt having been wrapped around her neck and that it was an accident. He would tell this same story to police when they arrived at his home at 1432 Andrew Street in Kentwood. Unfortunately, Richard was telling the truth about one thing. Amber was already beyond help. What would make this story that much more tragic, however, was that it wasn't just Amber who lost her life. At the time of her death, she was pregnant with her and Richard's third child, and both Amber and her unborn baby are now gone. When Richard Gitchelar was brought in for questioning, he maintained his innocence. He told police that he had been sleeping on the couch because it was too hot in their bedroom. He explained that he got up when he heard his daughters crying. When he went in to aid and check on them, he claims he then noticed his wife with a sweatshirt wrapped around her neck. that she wasn't breathing, at which point he then decided to call 911. Though Richard was inevitably let go, the circumstances surrounding the death of Amber Gitchellar were documented as suspicious in the initial police report. Both Amber and Richard's families were devastated. How could this have happened? Was this truly a freak accident or was there more to the story here? While authorities were still investigating how and why this tragedy occurred, Amber's family were left to grieve, left to bury their beloved school teacher on the very same day she was brought into this world, 33 short years later. Amber's funeral took place on her 33rd birthday of all days on November 19th, 2020. Her obituary read as follows. Amber Gitchelar, knee de Graff, to 11-16-2020 Amber, age 32, unexpectedly passed from this life and into the arms of her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, on November 16, 2020. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Book of Philippians, chapter 3, verse 20. Amber had a huge heart and a love for Jesus, She is survived and deeply missed by her beloved daughters, Ari and Zara. Her parents, David and Amy DeGraff. Her sister and brother-in-law, Brittany and Dylan Wiley. Her brother, Justin DeGraff. And all of her other family members and many special friends. The morning of the services, only three days after Amber and her unborn child lost their lives, her sister Brittany took to Facebook. She posted a photo of Amber's two daughters with a plate of bacon homemade Mickey Mouse pancakes that had birthday candles in them. The text above this heartbreaking photo Brittany had taken simply read,
4: Happy birthday, Amber. We love and miss you so much.
0: While everyone knew there was trouble in Amber and Richard's relationship, Richard never gave anyone the impression that he was ever violent. That is, with the exception of his own family. The Kent County Sheriff's Office would later note, that there had never been a case similar to this one in the past, and that almost every one of the potential suspect's immediate family members believed Richard might be the one responsible for Amber's death. When authorities questioned said family members, Richard's father surprisingly told investigators that there was a 98% chance that his son was guilty. Richard's own sister came forward as well, saying she believed that he may have, quote, flew into a rage and was unable to control himself. When Richard's brother was asked if he'd showed any tendencies of violence in the past, he responded by telling detectives that he'd once threatened to burn the family house down when they were children. Richard also allegedly threatened it to kill the family pet hamster when they were young. All of these accounts surely were not enough to make an arrest at this point, but law enforcement was certainly building their case. When the autopsy report came back, their suspicions only grew. The findings showed injuries consistent with manual strangulation and asphyxiation, and her injuries ruled the result of a homicide. The word compression was also used, as if someone had pressed down on Amber's airway until she was no longer able to breathe. The extent of bodily harm inflicted on Amber certainly wasn't adding up to Richard's side of the story of his wife accidentally rolling over in bed and effectively strangling herself with a hooded sweatshirt. Not that this was even remotely believable from the beginning, but investigators now had the professional opinion from the medical examiner as validation of their concerns. Richard also changed his story several times over. People who knew Amber and Richard said that he never got up to help with the girls when he heard them crying. Here's Rachel Westman. Kent County Assistant Prosecutor, speaking to why Richard's claims were so peculiar.
6: He said what made him finally wake up and get up was the, hearing this baby cry. And um, again, you know, her sister said he never got up with the baby. That just wasn't what he did. They said, you know, we've never had this situation before where everyone around these two is saying he did it.
0: There were holes in each one of his accounts given to police. He was the only one present in the home at the time Amber died, other than the children, who, according to the 911 call, had witnessed their mother's lifeless body. While a lot of this evidence is circumstantial at best, a smoking gun was soon to be revealed. That would indeed change the course of the entire investigation. After a warrant was obtained, property was seized and a full search of the home conducted, and the couple's vehicles were also searched. Inside Amber's minivan's center console were pages of loose-leaf paper. Pages from Amber's diary. The passages we provided earlier in the episode were from among those found. Only no one knew of them until now. While the other writings from Amber were certainly indicators that the relationship was failing, the last two pages showed a much darker truth of what was actually going on. They read as follows.
3: He has beaten me. Punched, kicked, and choked me. Threw a mug at the big screen TV. Smashed a computer on the ground. Smashed my cell phones. Punched glass showered doors. Broken four doors. Smashed counter with hammer. Smashed cable box with hammer. Punched hole in wall.
0: This was an extension of Amber's pros and cons list. The page was hard to make out from ink blots that had bled one word into the next, but the most crucial information was legible. The proverbial screams coming off the page were loud and clear, but what investigators read next would give even the most seasoned detective chills.
3: I have literally asked myself, am I safe falling asleep next to him? Would he ever kill me? I can't talk to him about anything. He controls every conversation we have. If I bring something up, he always says later. If I push, he starts to yell at me very loudly because he knows I shut down. In the past, that shut me down because our dog would cower behind me. Now I don't want Ari and Zara to experience it. If I wait until she is asleep, he will yell to wake her up. If I persist after yelling, he resorts to violence.
0: It's as if Amber had left this behind for someone to find in case something happened to her. Whether this was truly her intention or not, we may never know. But she was clearly afraid this would happen. And unfortunately, she was right. Amber was telling her story after she had been killed, from beyond the grave in the form of her private diary. Amber's family was in shock when they heard about the discovery of these pages, she had never hinted once that there was violence in their home, never mind that she was living in fear for her life, sleeping next to a soon-to-be murderer. And murder is exactly what authorities now believed they had enough evidence to charge Richard Gitchelar with, just two months later on January 9th, 2020.
4: Court documents are beginning to give us a better idea of what investigators believe went down the day that Amber Guchelar died here at their Kentwood home. Police saying that her husband, Richard, was the only one home at the time who would have been physically capable of causing the injuries that led to her death.
0: Neighbors of the couple were equally as shocked that the seemingly picturesque family had apparently been hiding a dark, violent secret. I'm in
2: shock they were... Such a great couple, and he was a really nice guy. I, I just, I can't believe this, and I've, we're at a loss. She, it is. This is a deep loss for our neighborhood. She just was, she just was like a bright spot, you know.
0: A few days later on January 11th, a bond hearing was held remotely via Zoom, and a balding and bearded Gitchellar was given the opportunity to speak from behind his face mask
6: is there anything
5: that you would like to say before the court sets bail? Um, just, just know that I will show up for everything that I'm supposed to and um, that, that I'm, I'm not a risk, Your Honor.
0: Richard informs the judge that he will be punctual in regards to his upcoming court appearances, as if he had a choice or the luxury to do anything of his own free will, for that matter. Regardless of what he said or how polite he came across, Richard wasn't going anywhere anytime soon, and a bond was set for $2 million. He was held in detention and charged with the murder and the death of his wife, Amber Gitchelar. Richard's trial would be delayed several times, dragged through the court system just as almost every other case was during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic. But Richard would eventually see his day in court, on February 21st, 2022. Only there would be no jury trial. Instead, the hearing lasted only six minutes.
5: Did you strangle your wife and kill her? Yes,
1: Your Honor. And that was intentional, was that correct? Yes, Your Honor. And you knew that she was pregnant at the time, is that correct? I did, Your Honor.
0: Richard Gitchellar would wind up taking a deal, agreeing to plead guilty to second-degree murder and to the assault of his pregnant wife. There was no mention of a potential motive. At the hearing, Amber's mother took to the podium, asking the judge to impose the maximum allowable sentence in the plea agreement her daughter's killer had just entered into. We
1: will not know how or of what happened.
3: But we do know indeed that in your courtroom that you get to learn and confess to killing our daughter, my Amber, that he didn't do it intentionally. And he didn't know she was pregnant. And we do consider that baby a life. Our family does. So we just ask with your experience and your wisdom as a judge, please
6: see fit the sentence
2: that you're about to get Richard Gitchelar that would fit the crime of killing a daughter a well, he and her a child. We please ask that you consider the two young children that have been left behind.
0: Before a future sentencing date was scheduled, Gitchelar was granted the opportunity to address the court aloud,
1: sir, is there anything you'd like to say to me before I impose sentence, or any comment with regards to your pre-sentence report? I just uh, search for words these uh, last sixteen months on how to express my sorrow, remorse, uh, and regret. I've been unable to. Okay. My wife is a wonderful human being. Wonderful mother. Daughter? Great daughter? It's so many other things. I'm very really too responsibility when I get
0: it. Whether Richard Gitchilar's weeping was sincere or not made no difference. The judge would not shy away from providing Gitchelar his opinion as to whether or not he should ever walk free again.
1: There's just no excuse or justification for this brutal and senseless murder. Uh, there's none whatsoever. I believe, sir, that you are a danger to society, a danger to the people in this county, in this state. I don't believe you should ever be free, quite frankly.
0: In the end, Richard Gitchelar would be sentenced to a minimum of 33 years and four months in prison on April 28, 2022. Judge Mark Trusak sent the maximum at 100 years. After sentencing and while outside of the courtroom, a purely selfless moment was captured on cameras by local TV reporters between Amber's mother Amy and Richard's father, Principal Gitchelar. I'm sorry, George, and I don't
6: know why that happened. It's so no.
1: senseless. No. Yeah. No. yeah. No. yeah. How? i I'm sorry for your loss,
0: really. Amy leans in to hug Mr. Gitchelar and can be heard saying, I'm sorry for your loss. It's extremely powerful to hear a mother that has lost her own daughter at the hands of this man's son to show this level of grace and compassion. Amy knows that George has also lost his child as well, as Richard will likely never get out of prison. And if he does, chances are George won't be around to see it. His father's pain is equally palpable here.
5: We're all just broken by this. We're just broken
1: by this.
0: The local media were able to speak with Amber's mother following this interaction regarding the finality of this tragic case.
1: And we
6: love her. And we miss her, and it's a void. Our God is faithful, and he has this, and his will will be done, and it's in his hands. And we're sorry for both families, because we did love our son-in-law.
0: After everyone had left and gone home, and were forced to try to move on without Amber in their lives, Amber's sister, Brittany, took to Facebook once more. The very night Richard was sentenced, she wrote this post at 11.04 p.m.
4: Victims of abuse. Please don't let the fear of your abuser drive you to say nothing. I feel like with abuse, a lot of victims aren't ready to leave the relationship for a lot of reasons. Abusers can also do a good job of making their victims feel like it's their own fault or the victims are the one to blame. Let's normalize talking about this topic to try to drive out some of the unknown and the fears associated with domestic violence and abuse. If you or a loved one are going through this, reach out. Make time to be with your friend who's going through this. Listen to them, but never judge them. Start a conversation. I have learned communication is key. Abuse in a relationship is not okay, whether that be physically, mentally, emotionally. It is very dangerous and there are ways to get out of it. There are great organizations such as Safe Haven Ministries, YWCA, Resilience, Women's House of Prayer, to name a few. These amazing organizations provide safe housing, therapy, children's services. Speaking up can open the tiniest door to getting some type of help.
0: While Richard was sent away to spend the next several decades behind bars, we're all left with so many unanswered questions. We still don't know what sparked the altercation during those early morning hours that ultimately led to Amber's death, and frankly, we may never know how it all came to be. There are so many sad truths that lie within the loss of Amber and her unborn child. Assistant prosecuting attorney Rachel Westman speaks to why Amber may not have informed anyone that her husband was an imminent threat.
6: I think Amber did a really good job of covering for him. And probably because the kind of person she was, you know, she she was just so loving and caring and I think a fixer. And she always wanted him to be better and, and covered for him.
0: Amber was a very religious woman. Divorce would not have been an easy concept for her to cope with. There are countless reasons why women don't leave their abusive partners. It's never as simple as packing one's things and walking out the door for good. There's a deeply psychological element that most abusers use to their advantage and will manipulate in their toxic relationships. Most women feel as if they can't leave. And if they try, sometimes fear more of an impending dangerous threat, convincing themselves that it's somehow safer to stay. We'll never know exactly how Amber felt about her situation what her plans may have been to get out. But her letters left behind in the minivan paint as good a picture as any. Her family has been extremely vocal since Amber's murder. Her mother Amy in particular hopes if anything positive could possibly come from her daughter's tragic murder, it's that it urges women in danger to get out and recognize these risks before they escalate. And frankly, before it's too late.
3: Amber was very strong, very independent. She was very confident. For some reason, she chose to stay in a situation that obviously cost her 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 life.
0: And
3: that is the mystery.
0: It is a frustrating question when we hear the general public ask, why didn't they just leave in cases such as these? Not only is it insensitive, but again, it's never that simple. It's unfair to generalize lumping every domestic violence scenario into one. Every person's situation is unique and distinct. They faced vastly different challenges and hurdles in order to successfully escape such a threatening relationship. Domestic violence experts Holly Wilson and Sanaitha Jimenez, who are also directors of the Safe Haven Ministries, do a great job of breaking this down for anyone out there that could use this type of valuable insight
2: it is a dangerous question it's dangerous and it's a loaded question and um, I think it's it's hard to understand if you've never been in that situation right I was reading through some of the comments on your story yesterday and there were some survivors giving really really great comments um, just shedding a little bit of light of some of the reasons that survivors stay at the core of that right it's Fear, but it's a spectrum of things. It's, you know, really having love for that partner. There's children involved oftentimes, wanting to see the good in that individual, wanting others to see the good in that individual, and threats, right? Threats of leaving, especially when children are involved. Um, it's not always safe. In fact, it's rarely safe for survivors of domestic violence to leave those relationships. There's pressure involved—pressure from family, um, cultural pressure, spiritual pressures. There's a lot of barriers involved when individuals are trying to prepare to leave, or you know, thinking about what's next. Um, it's not as easy as let's pack a bag and you know go somewhere. Um, there's often that times that there's somewhere to go. They might not have support from friends or family. They might not have the financial support um, to be able to just pack up and go. It's a really loaded question. There's a lot of things that are involved with leaving. And so that's some of the support that Safe Haven provides is helping to safety plan for individuals who are ready and who want to leave that situation.
0: Holly Wilson goes on to explain some telltale signs that individuals can look out for, things that may be indicators or characteristics of someone in trouble.
6: You know, this is so tricky because, you know, oftentimes people may not know that somebody is experiencing domestic violence in their relationship. Um, Some of those signs, you know, I think just any significant changes in their normal behavior. Individuals who seem to be um, more conscious of like timeliness and how how quickly they have to respond to their partner. Are they disengaging from social situations that they would normally have been in? You know, sometimes the, the unexplained, Scratches or bruising. You know, you're really looking for just some of those more general characteristics. I think two survivors will often tend to throw out bits of information about their relationship that they might be concerned about, um, describing their partners as, you know, oh, you know, they got super angry, that, you know, being a little bit fearful of that anger. Um, and sometimes just testing the waters to see, you know, how are people going to respond to that. So if somebody suspects a, a family member or a friend, you know, just approaching that conversation really non-judgmentally, um, carefully, just saying, hey, I, you know, I have some concerns, or hey, I noticed this thing in your relationship or this change in your behavior, you know, can we talk about that? You know, being able to be equipped with where you can direct somebody, not not blaming the individual, not, you know, vilifying their partner, too. I think that's often a piece that survivors are really concerned about the reputation of their of their partner. And so not not making them out to be the bad person.
0: Amber's family continues to rebuild the best way they know how through their faith and through family. Her sister, Brittany, has reportedly taken custody of Amber's two daughters and a crowdfunding campaign was created having raised over $80,000 in support of the children. Brittany and her husband Dylan are also pregnant with a baby of their own due October of 2022. By all accounts, they couldn't be a more loving and accepting family. If you or anyone you know is struggling to get out of a dangerous relationship or needs help, please don't wait. Help is available 24 hours a day at the National Domestic Violence Hotline. That number is 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233.